You're about to hear my conversation with Andrew Simpson. We talk about his deep experience in investing in ES&G principles, how he thinks about corporate engagement, looks at management and understands valuation in companies, and finally, we get recommendations of his favorite books and something unusual to do when you visit Vancouver. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with Andrew Simpson. Andrew has recently joined McKenzie. He is leading our new Better World Boutique. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Pleased to be here, Matt. I've been looking forward to a wide-ranging conversation. Let's get started with how you became interested in investment management, and Andrew, I guess in your case specifically with uh, ES&G investment management. Sure thing. Uh, for me, it goes back to university days. I started off in uh, in computer science, uh, took an economics course, and and just got really fascinated with the idea of uh, how capital flows and demand and supply can affect uh, the world around us. Uh, that got me uh, turned on to investing, and um, and for me, uh, following school, I, I joined a, a Vancouver-based investment firm that was uh, very much institutionally focused, and uh, was really uh, pleased to be there. One of the first jobs as a junior analyst I had actually was uh, helping a portfolio manager establish uh, a socially responsible investment. Hmm fund and and that's what they were called back then uh sri funds and and it was to meet uh some objectives of one of their institutional clients and then they thought there would be an opportunity to uh to offer that out on on a retail basis as well um but it 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 actually uh got me interested in the idea of you know what is what is a good company what is not a good company from from different factors and and at that time it was just negative screening. It was someone sends us a list of companies they've deemed as not being socially responsible, and it gets crossed off the the existing uh, firm's uh, model. And um, you know that that just it it, it made sense, but it, but it, I, I felt it was only half of the equation because uh, what about looking at Good companies was one of the things that 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 I had kind of considered at that time, and um, and so that kind of stuck with me uh, for a few years in my career, um, and uh, I had the opportunity to actually uh, put this in practice. Um, you know, about ten years later, actually, when I uh, when I joined Van City Investment Management the real idea of of an integrated investment process um putting that into fruition uh with the team there great uh we'll get into the integrated investment process in just a second i'm curious what was the the year or around what year did you start the the first uh sri experience that you had uh with the institutional client uh it was back in uh, 2001 actually Wow. So 20 years ago, this, uh, quite the journey, uh, both in investment in general, when I think about the market dynamics, but specifically within your space uh, and the maturation of that industry uh, over the past 20 years has been profound. Um, maybe we'll jump into uh, into how you invest and, uh, and maybe get a sense for how you're doing things now. 
Um, so how would you describe your investment process uh, from the from the uh, bottom up or top down or, or how would you describe it? It, it definitely is a bottom up process. And I, I think uh, one of the things that, that I always like to highlight we're looking at things from the lens of a stakeholder. And, and I think that is not really um, entrenched out there in the industry, but I think it's, it's really important to how you consider a, a company's value uh, because, you know, stakeholders are groups that interact with a company or get affected by a company. And, and so for us, um, you know, I, I'd say that the way we look at things is we, say there are six stakeholders that that we feel are key to um, that company's intrinsic value. And that's looking at some areas like the community, um, the, the customers, uh, of course, the employees, but also I think, and really important today is, is the environment. I, I do feel the environment is actually a key stakeholder. Um, you've got the suppliers and then of course, uh, which is the traditional stakeholder, you've got the shareholders. And so when you put all those together, um, and you can optimize, um, how this company interacts with them, that's where we think the shareholder value comes from. I'd love to expand on that, maybe a, a little bit more detail. So, uh, you, you referenced the six stakeholders, um, you know, shareholders clearly has been. Uh, something that has been dominant, I'd say, in investing, um, certainly um, over the past, call it half a century. Um, I, how do you how do you incorporate those other stakeholders in your analysis? And you know, ultimately, you are a, a shareholder when you choose to invest in a, a company. So, how do you think about trading off um, the the different stakeholders? And, and if there's conflicts between them, how do you how do you arrange like sort through that? Yeah, I think it's a process of, of uh, identifying risks and opportunities. So if you're looking at, um, you know, the community, for example, uh, th this company has to have a social license to operate um, in, in the community that they're in. Um, how do they interact with the local um, residents? Um, what environmental um, rules and, and regulations are they following to ensure everyone is safe around them, for example. Um, you know, those kinds of factors are really important. Um, we can get into details about suppliers. So if you're providing a product, um, you know, customers want to feel safe when they purchase your product and that it is there's quality there and, and no risk to them. So we, we get into the supply chain. We want to make sure that um, the company has a handle on where their inputs are coming from. Um, how are they being handled? Who's who's actually doing the uh, the picking of these products and 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 base uh, materials? Uh, you know that really gets into those bigger issues of uh, you know human rights, making sure that uh, the supply chain is audited and is is following generally accepted international principles. And maybe uh follow up on that so i guess on the supply chain maybe specifically but just generally there's a limitation to how much you can know in some cases um and sometimes supply chains are are um very complex and, and hard to sort through um how do you deal with companies like that is that just you remove companies where you don't have transparency from your universe or or is there a, another mechanism that uh that you look to do 
Yeah, I, I think the first part is is uh, controversy. So if if a company has been uh, uh, written up um, for issues in the past, that that's a red flag to us. So we want to look at past um, operating experience for the company to see if any issues have come forward there. The the other aspect is having that uh, dialogue with the company to say, hey, we haven't really got anything on your website um, or your uh, regulatory filings on how you're dealing with your suppliers. Can you give us some more detail? And if that's forthcoming and it's there, then that, that's a good first step for us. But uh, we, we tend to uh, turn the other way if we're not getting a response from that perspective. And you referenced that negative screening uh, being sort of the most primitive, uh, your first uh, um experience with this these types of strategies do you still employ negative screens we do we we think it's actually an important part uh when when you when a lot of people think about esg uh it's it's a risk um assessment um process so what we want to do is is avoid companies that we think have unsustainable revenues or controversies. So that's the negative screening aspect. So avoiding avoiding those types of companies where we think either there's a reputational risk, a product risk, or a, a negative um, impact to the stakeholders. Uh, so we, we've actually set out uh, six uh, areas that we think uh, offer unsustainable business revenues that we would uh, look at from a company analysis perspective. And if the revenues are excessive, we're going to exclude that company. Uh, so firstly, for us, um, you know, I can run through those very quickly for you is sure. fossil fuels is is, is really the, the, the key part um, for us. Uh, we want to avoid uh, fossil fuel revenue exposure. Um, and that really goes into this uh, green energy transition and decarbonization imperative that, that we're all working through at this point. The, the other areas that we think are unsustainable are, are tobacco, um, right. adult entertainment, uh, weapons um, of any sort, to be honest, and uh, gambling and, and nuclear energy. And so those are those are areas that that we think um, in the past have risks, have risks looking forward. If a company is deriving a significant amount of revenue, um, then then we want to pro- avoid that company. And so for us, we we put a a number of of ten percent or less um, mm-hmm. for 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 all of those. And uh, in fossil fuel, it's uh, it's roughly about the same level. And and how do you determine those categories? Uh, I mean, certainly, I think that uh, some of them seem rather intuitive when we think of weapon manufacturing. Uh, that's uh, uh, appalling to many investors. Um, I, I guess the one that sticks out to me is nuclear, uh, where uh, you can have arguments on both sides for the environmental uh, effects of nuclear. Um, but in general, how do you choose what goes on that negative screen list and maybe a little bit on your your view on nuclear? Sure thing. So so for us, it, it's really... Um, what types of risks can come come about? So, um, you know, uh, for tobacco, for example, there's an addiction potential, uh, personal health impact, and and certainly uh, increasing cost for a country's health system. Sure. So, so, so those are you know headline issues that we would say uh, makes that an unsustainable. Um, uh, form of, of revenue generation. Uh, nuclear is kind of an interesting one in that, you know, uh, I think the, the, the going 
model that's out there is that some of the uh, uh, meltdowns and risks we've seen over the over the past decades, they're supposed to be hundred year risks, but we're actually seeing them in in, a, in the current environment at about you know a twenty to twenty five year cycle. So so something doesn't add up there, and and so from our perspective, it's that safety concern and environmental impact um, at this point, exposure to accidents that 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 puts us on in the camp of avoiding. Um, I think it brings up a good point, though, to talk about innovation, because, um, you know, within um, nuclear, for example, there's been a lot of um, talk about the small modular reactor option, something that's a, that's a lower risk way to to produce. Um, and, and I think innovation is fantastic. Um, However, when you look at the market right now, we don't see a company with a billion dollar market cap making a significant um, level of revenues from that product at this time. So, you know, maybe this is something that we're, we're happy to review in the future. But in the current environment, um, with, with the way that uh, risks are and cost structures are, it's an area that we avoid. Makes a lot of sense. Um, and... So once we get through that that negative screening, um, what else do you look for within a company? Uh, as far you, you you referenced, you're a bottom up investor. Uh, so what do you look for from both company characteristics on those ES and G factors, as well as uh, valuation and, and more traditional metrics? Sure. Um, yeah, the way, and I, I would just maybe step back for a sec. That there's there's really four steps for our process here that that I'm going to highlight, and and, and, I, and you're talking about uh, the assess phase. So we 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 really uh, package our process into four four A's, which is avoid. Um, assess, analyze, and advocate. And so assess for us is identifying companies that have positive uh, characteristics towards generating impact. And the way we like to uh, measure that is how does that company uh, align up with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals? Mm. We think that's really a, a great international benchmark um, that is focused on just improving uh, health, wellness, and, and, and prosperity globally. It's a 2030 target. We're getting pretty close to that date, to be right. honest. Um, but but it is a benchmark. And and what we found over the last um, 10 years is it actually is a great language to speak with management teams about because it's something that they're aware of. You're increasingly seeing uh, management teams having some of their compensation tied to the sustainable development goals. and um, any investor presentation that you look at now will tend to reference them as, as, as how are they trying to make a contribution. So, so we do find that really um, uh, an attractive way to, to categorize the companies we look at. Um, on, on the valuation perspective, which is our, our, our analyzed component here, you know, what we want to do is, is, is validate the business model and the competitive advantage for, for the company. And, and for us, that's really key because when you're looking at some of the avoid and assess issues that we've talked about, um, positive and negative screening, um, a lot of those factors aren't necessarily in traditional financial statements at sure. this stage. And, and so, you know, we want to also look at the companies in our portfolio uh, to be um, uh, comparative against their industries and their sectors to say that there is a, a reasonable valuation level um, that the growth opportunities that we're forecasting for this company um, are superior to the other companies that are out there. 
So, so in in that context, um, you know, we really try and answer, uh, a, a, you know, I guess about six key areas when we're looking at a company um, that we can in our investment thesis clearly identify, you know, that there's a well-defined core business model that, that we find attractive. They're operating in an industry that we think um, has, has a future um, and, and is an attractive industry um, that they do have that sustainable competitive advantage relative to their peers. Financial soundness, of course, um, we, for us as a quality growth manager, that's how I'd categorize um, our stock selection. Um, you know, we're generally looking for companies here that are going to be growing faster than the market over the next three to five years. Mm. Um, they provide uh, a reasonable um, valuation level compared to market metrics. So we're not willing to pay exorbitant prices for these companies. But if they're a leader, they're going to have a bit of a higher valuation. I, I think that's fair. Sure. Um, and, and on debt levels, I think are really important. Uh, we want to have a reasonable level of debt. We don't, don't want to be holding companies that are over leveraged. So when you put that all together, um, we actually go back over a couple market cycles with companies to see how they've um, reacted over these previous cycles. And that gives us a context because we do think, um, you know, depending where you are in the market, it's very easy to get swayed by being overly optimistic or overly pessimistic um, about the outlook for a company. So kind of having that frame of reference is important um, for traditional financial metrics. And then we model out over the next three fiscal years how we think this company is going to uh, perform going forward. And that gives us what we call a risk-reward analysis for, for a stock. Um, and that's really the basis of our investment thesis. That's great. Uh, I'm curious to pick up on something that you referenced in the early part of that answer, which was uh, you talked about uh, companies in their investor materials putting in things on the sustainable development goals uh, and, and being able to speak that language. Um, I'm curious, the, the space that you invest in has certainly grown in popular, popularity, both from a demand side with investors wanting access uh, to, to more um, friendly, environmentally friendly uh, social governance uh, portfolios, uh, but also from a supply side with more and more companies becoming aware of it uh, and, and coming to market and representing themselves that way. How do you see that dynamic on the universe taking place? Have you found that there's more money chasing fewer companies that's pushing up valuations or has the supply reacted uh, to the demand and, and you're still able to find reasonable valuations? It's a great question. I, there's there's no doubt there are a, a plethora of, of more uh, funds that call themselves ESG funds or sustainable sure. funds out there. So so I think the competition has grown. I would say that there's also has been a um, impetus for companies to um, communicate in that uh, language as well. So there may have been a few years ago companies who just didn't bother uh, to uh, in incorporate some of the analysis and metrics that that investors looking from an ESG lens uh, really like to see. Um, there, so there, there is better um, reporting on that. Um, and so we found a reasonable universe of companies still. So we don't feel constrained. Um, and, and we found, you know, uh, when you look at, I think, Going, let's go out to 2050 because that's really uh, the year that I think a lot of people are are, are focused on with right. with the initiatives towards net zero that is really um, picking up amazing speed and 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 it is great to see. 
But um, within that context, and you think of the transformational moves that we have to see, for example, in, in terms of decarbonization of the power grid, um, things like that, the, the magnitude of um, change that needs to happen uh, within uh, capital markets to, to supply the capital towards that um, is, is, is going to, uh, I think, um, really, I guess, keep valuations at reasonably elevated levels um, sure. for, for these types of companies who are bound to participate. However, uh, the, the profitability and um, that I see going forward for these um, areas of the market are still very attractive. So I think it, um, it, 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 it washes out in my view. Yeah, the growth is there to justify the valuation uh, potentially. Um, maybe to extend that sort of thought, um, one of the areas that we're seeing more and more involvement in is uh, governments uh, getting involved in either um, indirectly uh, financing or directly financing uh, innovation uh, and, uh, and the anticipation to green the economy. Uh, and the like. How important is government involvement in these uh, segments, and how do you view government involvement when you when you're looking at your businesses? So for for us, um, because we tend to focus on on established larger companies in our portfolio, um, we have less of an impact there. I, I think government support, as well as um, you know, venture capital, is is hugely important uh, to stimulating innovation. Um, I, I do think that we are seeing um, a lot of uh, sectors looking at transition. How, how can we stay relevant as a sector? Um, and, and so there is some exposure to that in, in our portfolios. I think uh, companies uh, making the capital investments. I think that um, having government involvement in capital markets from a regulatory perspective is always going to be there and it's 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 important uh for um making sure that the goalposts are there uh for for everyone to operate within uh, maybe we can uh, take a, a moment to talk about portfolio construction so how do you think about um, uh, putting all these businesses that pass the negative screen that uh, that you incorporate positive screens on and meet your valuation criteria. How do you put that all together into a portfolio? So, so for us, it, 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 I think it comes back to my uh, earlier days on the on the institutional side that you need uh, a framework. Um, you you need to look at. Um, benchmark sector weights as a risk management tool and th and that's our view so bottom-up portfolio construction may um, always tend to lead to some overweights in some particular areas for for example in canada there's there's just a, a real great number of different types of industrial companies right um which which tends us to say we've identified more so we have a bit of an overweight to that sector but but our risk management is is really in two parts there is is one to be cognizant of a of a a, a, a benchmark weight in a particular sector and not to be you know exceedingly above that level so let's say 150 percent of um of benchmark weight um the other side of it is on individual company levels you know being cognizant of of what the uh, position of that company is in the benchmark and so what we've done in the past is is always had roughly a, a 100 to 200 basis point overweight to a, any particular company and and for us um that has been really successful in managing downside risk um, 
because of that risk reward valuation that we talked about earlier, um, when we're reviewing that on a regular basis, we'll, we'll find companies where we're just not seeing the upside as much. And those are the ones we're, we're taking profits on and keeping within that uh, 100 to 200 basis point range. So, so that has, I think, helped us overall by be, being able to take profits. And it's also helped us when, um, you know, something is out of favor or has had a stumble, it gives you the conviction to, to um, add back to that company at a more challenging time, which is really when you tend to make uh, most of the money. Uh, in that name. Great. Um, I'd like to spend a bit of time talking about what you do after you purchase a company as well. I know that engagement uh, is or advocate as uh, as uh, you framed it with uh, one of the A's is a big part of your process. Take me through what that looks like. How do you advocate uh, your companies um, and, uh, and, and what's the process look like on that front? It's, it's, it's a very important part of our process. Uh, we think it's actually a hugely uh, va- uh, valuable tool in communicating with our investors as well to really show that the capital they're entrusting us is is being um, allocated to companies that we think we can make a difference in. So that's positive. And really for us, it's it's being proactively engaging with companies, you know, kind of help them to manage ESG risks that we've identified in our investment process. So when we're looking at a company, we may come across some areas that we think, hey, th- this company is good, but this is one area we think they can address to become better. And uh, and that's really important to us. And it's also to to capture opportunities that we see and accelerate impact. So so as a shareholder, um, you have this right to dialogue with management and, and we want to take advantage of that. Um, so engagement to us is really kind of three key points. We want to be able to voice our values to the company. Uh, we want to be able to manage risk for our investors. And, and we also want to be able to create impact. Um, and, uh, and that's where we kind of tie in the sustainable development goals. So when you, when you can have that uh, conversation with companies um, and they um, – uh, trust you, you've been around for a while, you can have, um, I, I think, quite a, an engaging dialogue. And, and over the over the last uh, 10, 15 years, we've really seen um, uh, that ability to get positive responses improve quite a bit. And so uh, that's been, been uh, important for us. Y- you know, when we look at engagement, we kind of break it into two buckets, really, you know, like a strategic engagement campaign, which is focused on a... Um, on a sustainable development goal issue. So we can, I can kind of give you an idea of some of those uh, priorities that we're talking about. And then a, a tactical engagement strategy where we've identified, for example, a risk and we, we need to get a response from, from a company. So uh, for example, if we're already owning a company and you know uh, an issue happens, we, we have to make a decision, is this, is this issue violate our ESG thesis on this company? And um, we want to reach out to management, get their response. And if it isn't uh, favorable in terms of our view, then that can potentially be a, a reason for divestment and looking for an alternative. But but in many cases, um, it starts a, an active dialogue that that leads to a resolution that we feel is acceptable for the fund. Great. And and give me a sense for how receptive companies have been to that degree of engagement and has that changed over time? I, th- I think it comes down to, yeah, the, the quality of the company. I would say, I would characterize it that we have over the years had a much more um, 
have had an increasing dialogue with with senior management at companies. So these issues are taken much more seriously by uh, corporate executives these days than they did say a decade ago. Um, that that's one thing, and so that means you can actually get quicker change in a company, um, which which we find to be uh, a, a a gratifying experience. I, I, that that's kind of the key point I would say on this perspective. I think all all companies want to be uh, responsible to their shareholders. What's really important is you know what are the questions you're asking. I think that's really where the value is. If you're asking insightful questions on on issues that are are relevant, um, they're all logical people. They're going to see the reason for this to be addressed. Sure, that that uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, is there a, a an engagement template, or do you continue to engage after you've divested for for whatever reason to try to improve that company? So, so yeah, if we've um, if we've sold a, a company because of valuation or or uh, divested because of an issue, we're not able to engage because you have to be a shareholder to engage. But that doesn't mean we can't talk about climate change risks with the companies that we own. So, so let's take uh, the banks, for example, which are one of, you know, obviously the biggest providers of capital to, to the uh, energy patch. And um, one of the issues that we wanted to bring up uh, owning, owning a bank is, is uh, you know, looking at a moratorium on our Arctic oil um, financing. For example, so this was an issue that was important to us, and uh, it's it's not in a sector that's purely energy, but but it is involved in it. And so that's that's one way I would highlight that we uh, look at look at our larger issues, and um, and then uh, you know I I think that for for all the companies that that we have in the portfolio, we have a kind of an overarching view of um, some some engagement priorities that we want to address, whether it's in on the environmental side, social side, or, or, or governance side. Um, and, and so that can go across sectors as well. Um, so we can... We, uh, the, the ones that I would highlight, for example, um, you know, on, on the environmental side is, is just the, the green energy transition. Any company you speak to today is going to have to come up with a plan for dealing with the transition to net zero. So that's that's a, that's across the portfolio and something we're, we're actively discussing with. Uh, food security, uh, feeding the future is very important to us. So um, th- that can go across a number of sectors, whether it's consumer staples or in the um, in the material side, in terms of uh, uh, l- looking at um, providing the nutrients to to have these uh, food supplies safe and um, and and robust for the growing population. Um, the social side is 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 very important to us um, it, as well. So looking at protecting human rights, looking at uh, employee wellness. Um, I think coming through COVID, we can all really see the importance of of companies stepping up and and supporting their their employees, and and that is really one of the key factors for us that makes a a, a good forward looking company. Um, Issues in Canada around reconciliation are, are really important to us, and that that idea it really goes into the community as well. But uh, uh, respect for the for the communities out there is is quite important. Those are great examples uh, to to bring up. Uh, you, you mentioned the social side. 
Um, I think environmental, there's been a lot of uh, commitment on a global basis. Social is a little bit different uh, in the sense that uh, there are cultural differences uh, to be considered uh, potentially. Um, and of the three, I mean, governance seems like it's uh, also fairly standardized uh, across the globe, but perhaps you have a different opinion on that. I'm just curious, how do you consider different cultures, different regions when you're looking at uh, at social specifically, but you can also comment on the other uh, uh, environmental or governance as well? Yeah. So within a, a global portfolio, I think what's really key for us is is looking at um, international norms. And, and so uh, we really want to back up uh, an engagement or an issue with, for example, uh, a, a UN body that has recognized um, a particular issue. So um, as, as you would get down into a, a country and, 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 and specific issues, you, know, you can use the idea of example, many European countries take you know that that lunchtime break of three or four hours to be with the family, but they're going to work there. So that's right. not going to be an issue for us. We're going to be looking at company productivity, and you'll find that uh, a lot of those companies have happy employees, and um, and, and that follows through into the share price. I, I, I think that um, f- for us, by sticking to international norms, um, we're, we're trying to really tackle the bigger issues. Um, so, you know, in, in the supply chain, do you have child labor uh, getting a, a, a extracting a resource? You know, those are really serious issues for us, and 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 that's the higher level that we tend to focus on. Um, you know, uh, you, I think you're right on on the governance side um, with with the way that uh, uh, capital markets have been established. You know, these are standard um, approaches to looking at uh, shareholder governance that we we uh, stand firmly behind and you're looking at the standard things that a lot of maybe institutional funds focus on that that we think are well covered so we don't spend as much time on them for example executive compensation uh, there's there's hundreds of funds that focus on that we would rather uh, speak to a company about uh, you know living wage for their employees um, you know, to be able to a family of four to live in a, a major Canadian city um, is pretty substantial these days and ensuring that uh, companies are, are looking at and moving towards those standards is, is quite important. We'd rather spend our time there. That's great. Um, final question before we get into some recommendations, uh, but the boutique that you're leading, uh, the name is Better World. That's a big name. How did you come up with it? It is a big name, and um, I, I think um, how I would uh, characterize that is that we wanted to set a standard that uh, the team can live up to and really uh, highlights why we're approaching our investment process the way we do. And so, you know, it really comes down to if you're focusing on balancing the interests of the stakeholders in a company, if there, if that is being done from a, uh, a, a productive level, you are going to generate some positive impact from that. And, and so you put, you roll that up together, you, you get the term uh, better world. We always conclude these by asking a series of recommendations. Uh, maybe I'll start by getting some of your favorite books. It could be investing related, ESG related, or or not. Whatever, you, whatever you'd like. Yeah, I, 
the one uh, that I'd like to highlight is is the Bill Gates How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. It's been very mm-hmm. topical. I think it's a great re- easy read actually, and um, uh, I think we kind of highlighted on a couple points in the conversation today related to that. Um, it was behind my nuclear question, Andrew, for full <laughs> transparency. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, this this one's on my um, on my reading list, so uh, I, I'm I'm anxious to get started on it. I just haven't had the time. But um, Mark Carney's book, and it's because of, first of the name, but because of his uh, his background as well. But his, the title's values, uh, building a better world for all. So I'm hoping that there's going to be some uh, some points that align to us. Um, and, the, and what we're doing in that. Um, but uh, d- definitely recommend the Bill Gates book. I can endorse the Carney book. It's it's excellent. It actually has the best cr- uh, chapter on cryptocurrency that I've read, I think. So uh, look forward to that. Um, how about your favorite podcasts? So for me, um, market-related podcast, it's Eye on the Market by uh, Michael Sembelist of uh, J.P. Morgan, the chairman of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. He always has a, a great way of uh, interpreting um, the, the world around us. Great. And I know that uh, you reside in Vancouver. There's probably a lot of people who are itching to do some travel, probably domestic first uh, and then international. Uh, if uh, if people were to make their way to Vancouver from uh, the east uh, of, uh, of Canada, where would you recommend that they go? Maybe some unintuitive place. I think that um, the, the intuitive place is Whistler, but uh, I think you got to keep on going. Um, about half an hour down to, to Pemberton and it's really kind of the, the bread basket of the region. So spend a day doing some uh, farmer's market shopping and uh, hi- hike uh, out to one of the waterfalls that are there. It's a, uh, it's beautiful spot. Andrew, thank you very much for being so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. Great talking with you. content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 